This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining me today. I just had a great time talking with Anita Guarini about her really beautiful, beautifully written, beautifully illustrated, and fascinating new book, The Courtier's Anatomists, Animals and Humans in Louis XIV's Paris. This came out just this year in 2015, and it was published by the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a book that takes us into Paris as a site, as a material space, um, as a place where people were writing poetry, they were architects, they were making knives, they were cutting open bodies, they were finding stray cats and bringing them um, to spaces of experimentation, they were writing about this, they were um, drawing about this, Um, they were getting money from all sorts of places or not getting money. And all of this is happening in the reign of Louis XIV between 1643 and 1715. And collectively, all of these practices, and you'll see that uh, Anita really shows us how they're inextricable from one another, all of these practices produce new ways of thinking about and practicing experimentation, new ways of understanding, writing about, and imaging bodies, um, living bodies and dead bodies, animal bodies and human bodies. And it, it just generates a really fascinating story. This becomes a story that's both about anatomy um, and anatomists. And we meet four guys um, that you'll hear me mispronounce all over the place in a few moments. They're poets, they're architects, they're surgeons, um, they're anatomists, they're doctors. And it becomes a story about not just how they are cutting open, thinking about how to cut open living and dead animal and human bodies, but it also becomes a story of the ways that rhetoric, quintillion, opera, ideas of the senses, fairy tales, mother goose become really central to what's going on experimentally. So this is, um, I think, an absolute must read for anybody who's interested in or working on early modern science or medicine, histories of anatomy, um, histories of animals, histories of the body, or really anybody interested in this period of early modernity or the history of Paris. It's fascinating. I had such a great time talking with Anita about it, and I hope you um, both have a chance to get your hands on the book, because again, it's really beautiful and it's absolutely worth the time to read. I mean, it's so carefully done. It's so carefully crafted. And I hope you also enjoy the conversation. I certainly did. Thanks as ever for your support and for listening and have fun. 
I'm here today to talk with Anita Guarini about her new book, The Courtier's Anatomists. Welcome to New Books in Science, Tech, and Society, Anita, and thanks both for making time and space to talk with me today, but also for writing an awesome book. So much fun, so enlightening, so important. Welcome to the channel. Oh, thank you so much, Carla. It's really fun to talk to you. So let's start, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. So why history of science? How did you make your way to this particular research field as your field of specialty? Well, I mean, I was a history major in college as an undergrad, and I wanted to be a historian. I went, I applied to go to grad school to work on um, 19th century labor history. I from a, come from a working class family, and that seemed like something I needed to work on. And by great good fortune, I went to Oxford um, for a couple of years and discovered the history of science. I had no idea this field existed. And I always was interested in science, and I just kind of clicked. And I switched from 19th century socialism to 17th century science. So then I applied to grad school and got into Indiana University and worked with Sam Westfall. And that's, yeah, so that's where it came from. That's great. So the book that we're talking about today isn't about labor history. It's about, <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> not quite. Certain kinds of labor come in. Um, but it's about human and animal bodies, living bodies, dead bodies in Paris during the, during the reign of Louis Fourteenth. so between about 1643 and 1715. Now, the history of anatomy and of dissection specifically plays a really major role in the story, and the story ultimately is going to argue, by the time we get to the end of the book, that dissection played a major role in the development of experimentation and of experimental methods in 17th century science. So how did you come to this particular topic um, as a focus of research and why a book length object um, about this particular topic in the history of dissection in this period? I started getting interested in the history of animals um, and particularly animal experimentation in the late 1980s. Um, I published my first article on this amazingly in 1989, Five years ago. Um, and at the time, not many people were working on this. Um, and I was actually working on something else at the time, too. But I came back to it. I ended up writing a book, uh, A History of Human and Animal Experimentation, um, from, you know, the Greeks to now. And um, this particular topic, I've been kind of tossing around the idea of doing a you know, big, gigantic history of um, early modern public anatomy. And I was on sabbatical in Paris in 1999-2000, and I finished the book on human and animal experimentation when I was there. I said, well, I'm here. I should go look in archives. So I started looking in archives and kind of found this bunch of guys, um, and particularly Duvernay, who I'd never heard of and I'd never read anything about, who turned out to be probably the most famous anatomist in Europe at the end of the 17th century. So I thought, hmm, i got to work on this guy. So that's kind of where it started, and it went through many, many permutations between then and now. So, yeah. So speaking of um, where it started, the book actually, after the introduction, starts in the first chapter by taking us on what you've called before a corpse walk, right? (laughs) 
So <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. It's an amazing um, introduction to this chapter. And it opens with the journey of a dead body to sites of dissection. Now, this is a really wonderful way of mapping out um, the spaces of Paris that we're going to be spending a lot of time with um, right at the beginning of the book. So can you talk a little bit about this, the sort of a dissection history or a dissection-based mapping of, or corpse-based really mapping <laughs> of Paris. Um, for you, what are the most important things for us to understand about this way of mapping Paris? And how did you, um, as an author, come to your own understanding of the spaces of Paris in this way? I think, I mean, a dissection was something that was going on in a lot of places. And, but it's very, it's mostly invisible. So I wanted to physically trace where, where the bodies came from um, and try to kind of give individuality to both the humans and the animals who are being dissected at this point. Kind of, I mean, I couldn't really find out who, who they were, but I wanted to figure out where they were and how they got to, from one place to another. And I actually walked around Paris to try to figure out where these places are. Most of them are not there anymore. Um, the Church of the Holy Innocents is now a, you know, a pizza hut. Um, but, but it gave me a real sense of the, the distances and how close together these were. Paris was not physically that big in this period. So you could walk from one place to another. And the idea that these people are you know, stealing bodies in the middle of the night and bringing them across the river to the medical faculty or to the surgeons was just became very vivid to me. And I wanted to talk about that. So they're stealing bodies right in the middle of the night. Where else are they getting bodies for dissection? They're getting bodies from the hospital, um, which was right there. The Hotel Dieu was right there. There were other hospitals too. Um, and sometimes they're patients, but not usually actually, because if they were physicians, their patients would have been upper-class people who probably didn't want to be dissected. So the people who are dissected are mostly poor people um, and they would bribe the grave diggers. Um, they would buy bodies from the executioners because executioners actually had the right to sell the bodies they executed, which is something I only learned fairly recently. So there were ways to do it, but most of the people who were, who were dissected were people who were not, who had no power in society. I don't know if I made that clear enough in the book. Yeah. And so they're also working, the, the people who are doing the dissections that we're going to learn more about in a few moments, they're also working with animal bodies. So yes. where are they getting the animals that they're working on? From all over the place. I mean, there were lots of stray dogs and cats in Paris. Um, Robert Darnton has uh, quotes, some, uh, has a wonderful quotation in The Great Cat Massacre, something about, you know, a witch's Sabbath of cat's hells at night, which, is, yeah, you can hear that. Um, and so people kind of, so the um, anonymous would just kind of go out and round them up. Um, the Paris Academy of Sciences had a guy named Couplet who would just go out and quote unquote find animals um, and would, I think, contract with hunters to bring in wild animals from the countryside because they dissected foxes and badgers and weasels and skunks and things like that. So there were Lots of kind of local animals. And then the other source of animals that, of course, I talk a lot about in the book are the animals in the menagerie, the royal menagerie. Mm -hmm. 
and we're going to talk a lot more. Um, I hope, right? I hope we'll get there about the Royal Menagerie um, elephants and chameleons and beavers and lions and crocodiles and birds and all kinds <laughs> of things. And one of the wonderful things about the book, um, just for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, and I hope they do pick it up because. Uh, is that it takes us into, at various points of the book, real detail about some of these animals and also shows us some of the ways that these animals are illustrated in the text that we'll talk about. And so there's a wonderful uh, kind of archive of images um, and also descriptions and introductions to some of these animals in the pages of the book. So the first chapter after the corpse walk, it introduces four anatomists who were charter members of the Paris Academy of Sciences, and it helps us understand how each of them came to that position and, and really how each of them learned uh, their craft. And, and the way they came into the position is actually quite different in these four cases. So let's super briefly um, introduce this cast of characters for listeners. Which one is your favorite? Um, probably Claude Pillow. Okay, let's start with him. Yeah. So... Well, Perrault, because Perrault is, is kind of the hope for all late bloomers, honestly. He did pretty little in his career until he entered the Paris Academy, at which point he was 53 years old. So he became a physician in the early 1640s. He apparently practiced medicine. But nobody remarks on how wonderful he is as a physician. In fact, one of his critics later calls him you know, the celebrated assassin, Claude Perrault. But, um, but, and then suddenly he kind of finds himself. And in the 1660s, he starts designing buildings. He becomes a very famous architect right around architecture. And he enters the Paris Academy and immediately um, inaugurates this big program of dissection and anatomy, both human and animal, and keeps it going for over 20 years until he dies. Um, so he suddenly becomes this leader in the academy. And it's like, where did that come from? Because we have no evidence of it before that. So he's a very interesting guy. I wish I knew actually more about him. More, most of what's been written about him has been about his architecture. He was one of the architects at, of the, the colonnade of the Louvre, and he also designed the Paris Observatory. So he came in through one route. Um, the other three guys came in through very different routes. What about Jean Paquet? Oh, Paquet, yeah. He's an interesting guy, too. So he's a provincial, very talented um, anatomist who got kind of the right patrons, and he has a very interesting story. He comes to Paris in the mid-1640s, as far as I can tell, um, and has first as his patron a marquise, who dies, and then he dissects her, and then he um, enters... He his patron. I just he, want to underline he does. that. He dissects he does. his patron. He dissects okay. his patron, yes, and describes it. Okay. There's, although the description's not published until much later. Um, and then enters the Paris Faculty of Medicine to become a doctor in, in 1647, and at the same time gets a patron because he does not come from an elite background at all, and so he needs someone to pay for all this. So he gets as patron first a, a bishop named Francois Fouquet, who pays him basically to do dissections in his house, hmm. animal dissections and vivisections. And he does this over the next three years and then publishes this book in which he describes his discovery of the thoracic duct 
1651, and he dedicates it to Francois Fouquet and actually says this work was done in your house. So, like, interesting thing to do in someone's house. (laughs) So, and um, Pequet then becomes the client of Fouquet's brother, Nicolas Fouquet, who is a government minister and who is really angling to replace Mazarin, who is now kind of the, the chief minister for the regent because Louis XIV at this point is still quite young. No. And yes, no, go ahead. Okay. Um, so he stays with Fouquet, and then when Fouquet falls in 1661, Colbert kind of gets the jump on him, and Fouquet has this spectacular fall, kind of you know, the fall of the favorite, um, and is exiled. But um, Pequet actually goes to the Bastille with him during his trial and stays with him for three years as his physician. Wow. So it's an, yeah, he has an interesting uh, trajectory. So there's also a surgeon who is one of these four, Louis Guyon. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. about him? Well, he's interesting, too, and I wish I knew more about him. I don't even know when he was born. I couldn't, I couldn't find a lot of biographical information on him. But he is apparently independently teaching anatomy in the early 1640s because Pequet studies with him. And he's the only surgeon um, there. But surgeons are of different status than physicians. So I was surprised to see a surgeon actually among the ranks of the academicians. But he was obviously a very talented anatomist, and that's why he was recruited. Um, and he he dies in 1673 when he becomes the kind of head surgeon of the army. Mm-hmm. And this is when Louis XIV is, well, one of the many times Louis XIV declares war um, and dies in battle. So, um, yeah, so he's also, and, he, and he's a big enthusiast of blood transfusion, which not everyone at the time was. Ooh, and we'll talk about blood transfusion. I hope there's actually a really interesting discussion and some illustrations of blood transfusion <laughs> using dogs, right, a little bit later on in the book. So we've got the uh, the first three. We've now um, got to add a fourth, right? So the fourth uh, um, and, and I'm going to totally <laughs> butcher his name, like, even worse, you know, uh, than I butchered the other ones. Marin Corot de la Chambre. That's like pretty that. good. Yeah, Corot de la Chambre. So where's yeah. he coming from and what's what's his story? His, well, his claim to fame is, is as a poet. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's another physician, um, but he gains a patron in the 1630s by writing poetry, not by being a physician. And he becomes one of the, the first members of the Académie Française, which is kind of the big literary um, honorary society in, in 1635 when it's founded. So he's much more known as, a, as kind of a literary man than as a scientist. But he writes all these books in the 1640s and 50s on, among other things, animal cognition. So, and lots of people, the other guys, uh, Peke and others, dedicate things to him so it's not clear they dedicate things to him because they want him as a patron or because they admire his philosophical works but he's not an experimenter he's not an anatomist as far as i know he never dissected anything so his inclusion is kind of interesting and i think it's partly because he has again powerful patrons his patron is the chancellor of france um and and because the early academy was not just the scientific society. I think all these guys had kind of literary cred too. Mm-hmm. 
So this is a really interesting crew, right? We've got the yeah. four, these four um, anatomists who are charter members. We've got a poet, there's an architect, um, there's a surgeon, um, and there's a guy who dissected his patron. So there's, <laughs> this is a really, already a really interesting um, crew uh, that we're starting with. So in order to figure out, though, how they come to become charter members of the Paris Academy of Sciences, we first have to step back and look a little bit at some of the broader context. So chapter two helps us do that, and it looks very closely at the impact of the work of William Harvey in France. Now, this is super, super interesting. I think um, a lot of us who are at least um, marginally, if not directly working in or reading in the history of science, have heard of William Harvey, right? And when we hear of William Harvey, we think circulation of the blood. But what you're doing in this chapter is showing us much, much more about the impact of William Harvey, um, quite beyond, you know, that that's that simple um, object of the circulation of the blood. So as you put it here, William Harvey in the early to mid 1600s is reconceiving the relationship between natural history and anatomy and between Historia and Scientia. Now he's discovering the circulation of the blood and you, as you put it here, this validated a descriptive methodology that didn't include final causes and that's important. But equally important and, and in fact really, really interesting for our purposes is that he's using dissection techniques as an experimental method. And mm -hmm. you say here that this was really influential in compelling following generations toward an experimental science based on animals. So can you talk a little bit for us about the ways that Harvey is helping to reconceive experiment and experimentalism in this period? Um, when I started looking at this, I, I kind of, so I started looking at the 1660s and then I said, well, now I have to go back to the 1640s because this is kind of where all these guys are getting trained and so forth. And then I realized, no, I actually have to go back to Harvey because he's the one they all talk about and use as their touchstone. So what is it that Harvey does? And, and it's Harvey and also um, Gaspar Aselli, mm -hmm. who is doing similar things around the same time um, and discovers what come to be called the lacteal veins and publishes a year before Harvey. And both of those things are often paired, the circulation and the lacteals. Um, and in fact, that's what, what leads Piquet to make his discovery, his, his attempt to link these things. But anyways, but when I started reading Harvey again, and, you know, and I've been teaching this stuff for years, I've probably read De Motu Cordis 50 times, and um, but started really looking at what he was doing and what he said he was doing. And he uses the word historia a lot, natural, meaning natural history, history in the sense of description. And what was really influential to me was an article by Gianna Pomata about Historia came out about 10 years ago um, as, a, as a method. Um, and so linking the kind of descriptive method with natural history, which has always been portrayed as a descriptive science. But Harvey is doing more than natural history. He's doing description, but he's also intervening. He is opening things up. He's tying things off. He's trying to figure out what happens next. He's not just looking at things passively. So, and he certainly refers to this as experimentation, as an experimental method. But in the usual descriptions of experiment, it's not an experimental method. It's just description. So what's the difference between experimental demonstration 
and natural history. Um, and part, and the kind of what makes it not experimentation is that Harvey is unwilling to say what the cause is. So natural philosophy in the 17th century is about causes. Natural history is not about causes. But Harvey is using a historical method to make claims that if they're not causal claims, they're certainly more than simply description. So this is kind of where, where I kind of started from there. And his methods, I mean, Bob Frank talked about this, you know, 35 years ago in Harvey and the Oxford Physiologists, where he talks about the group in Oxford Boyle and others in the 1650s and 60s. Um, and so in some ways, you know, I could have called this Harvey and the Paris Physiologists. Um, and, but it's, he's the one who really kind of sparked this, idea that you could look at living animal bodies and make positive experimental investigations into human and animal function. So we see this use of living animal bodies playing out when we get to the next chapter, right? Mm-hmm. So after introducing this larger context with Aselli and Harvey, you take us into the founding of the Paris Academy. This was found, uh, the Paris Academy of Sciences was founded in 1666. And the four anatomists that we talked about before, right? The architect, the poet, um, the guy dissecting his patron. I'm still, you know, as a graduate advisor, right? Like every time I think about that, I'm just going to cringe a little bit. Um, (laughs) But but anyway, anyway, we'll put that aside. Um, So these four guys are appointed um, after the founding of the Paris Academy of Sciences. So chapter three brings us into their anatomical projects and brings back these guys and takes us into what they were actually doing for the academy. Now, here we go back into the work of Perrault, who becomes a leader in the academy. And you've talked a little bit about him already. Now, his plans for the academy included lots of dissection. Mm-hmm. And you take us into blood transfusion experiments in early 1667 um, as a way of helping us understand, among other things, the ways that experimentation, publication, and collaboration at the academy really set it apart from other kinds of peer institutions. And the chapter singles out uh, the Royal Society of London for special consideration as a, a kind of contemporary peer institution. Now, one of the major points that emerges, at least for me, right, as a reader in this chapter, is the collaborative nature of work at the academy. So the Academy was deeply collaborative, and that had consequences for its publication. So publications are in the name of the Academy and not the name of the individual author. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of that and the consequences of that um, for the story? Like, what, what do we need to understand in order to understand how and why that was so important here? Well, the Academy is really a Royal Academy in the way that the Royal Society was not, and that the Academy was directly under the patronage of the king. He paid every member of the Paris Academy of Sciences got a pension from the king. They were basically employees of the crown. So that was quite different than the Royal Society, which was really kind of a self-elected, self-governing institution. So the Paris Academy always had kind of Colbert watching over them. Um, and later, um, Claude Barrel's brother, Charles, was kind of the, the sort of supervisor in some way. Um, so that was different. So the Academy was kind of a unit in that had, had a self-presentation as the Academy and not as its individual members. 
And that was made clear from the outset that this was everything had to be collaborative. Every there had to be consensus on every research project. And if you read the minutes, it's it can get really tedious because they just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about what seemed to be sometimes really trivial issues. Um, but that was kind of part of their ethos was that it was a totally collaborative institution and that's how they felt science should, would progress, um, not by individuals, but by collaboration and by cooperation. Mm-hmm. So the, but the publication policy then is interesting because the academy was also much more secretive in some ways than the Royal Society, which was very public, um, the Academy's minutes were not published in any way. They didn't have an official journal. There was a journal called the Journal des Savants, it was a journal of um, smart people, that, that started in 1665, but it was not the official Academy journal. And some of the Academy's work was published in there, but certainly not all of it. And so there was always this tension between a kind of hunger for individual recognition that members of the academy obviously had, and this kind of demand that they be anonymous, basically. And there's there's a, there's kind of cracks in this um, facade very early on, where there are people publishing under their own names. They recruit stars like Huygens, who is certainly not going to publish anonymously, you know, and. So there's always a kind of tension, and even by the by the mid 1670s, you know, Claude Perrault is is put down as as the as the compiler of the um, memoirs for the history of animals. So, yeah, so it it does have an impact, though I think both on the kind of work they did, because everyone in theory at least had to agree on any research project, but also on the kind of credit they got. And you know, reading Mario Biagioli's work, we know that credit was extremely important. And so the credit for all of this doesn't go to the individual men. It goes to the crown, which was the point. Now, this is actually really important, just as a kind of oral footnote to think about for us today, right, as members of the Academy um, more broadly, um, in the context where I think, I'm I'm not sure if you're, um, you know, kind of involved in these conversations at your institution, but certainly over here, there's a lot of increasing conversation about collaboration, Right, mm-hmm. oh, methodology yeah. and yeah. all of these issues of you know, okay, how do we um, think about and produce credit in that context? You mm-hmm. know, Absolutely, authorship. Are we making up kind of pseudonyms that subsume the individual authors? And what does this mean for professionalization? What does this mean for promotion and tenure and this sorts of thing? So this is one of many moments I think in the book where you're giving us a very concrete historical context um, that potentially you know can be. Uh, illuminate, illuminating or illustrative for larger conversations um, that are very pertinent to the kind of work we're doing in another kind of academy, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So as you take us further into this chapter, we come back to one of the ideas um, that you talked about briefly a little bit earlier, and this is the idea of um, kind of animal cognition, right, and the consequences mm-hmm. of that. So uh, for listeners, um, we'll remember that we're talking about methodologies that involve dissection not only on dead animals, but also on living animals, right? I mean, we're talking about vivisection here. Mm-hmm. So this becomes really, really interesting as an issue. 
Now, you, you talk about the kind of mecha mechanistic philosophy that grounded the work um, of the members of the academy, but this wasn't a kind of Cartesian mechanistic philosophy. Instead, um, the work was based in part on the work of one of the guys that we talked about a little bit earlier. This was our poet. Right. right? Um, Chambre. Yeah. Exactly. And he um, was working on animal cognition and the soul. And this winds up in uh, really influencing Perot's um, mm -hmm. work and thinking about consciousness and feeling and rationality in animals. So can you talk about that, sort of the larger ideas about animal cognition and the soul as they're playing out in the experimental work of the academy? Well, it's very interesting that the academy is founded in some ways as a, an anti-Cartesian body because um, at this point in the 1660s, Descartes' Le Monde, the, his big massive work that he refused to publish in the 1630s, has finally been published um, in 1662 and 1664, immediately placed on the Index of Forbidden Books, as he feared. Um, and I'm not sure there's a direct connection between the anti-Cartesianism of the Academy and the kind of um, dubious Catholicism attached to Descartes, but certainly the Academy is not Cartesian. And um, nor are they Baconian, I might add. But so in Perrault, I think reading is reading Carreau de Chambre, knows him, they must all, I think they're all kind of in the same social circles. And he develops this, this philosophy, which he hasn't really published until, the, until 1680, about the an, animal soul, about the idea of animal cognition that Le Chambre develops in the 1640s that animals can't not feel pain and can't not have emotions, at least to some extent. Perrault develops this more and has this idea of kind of a, a there's a soul that's kind of permeates the body, both the human and animal body. And he bases this on things um, that like um, the idea that animals can learn things, a memory, a body memory, um, that this is evidence of this kind of, kind of animal soul. So he's not saying they're totally equal to humans, but certainly he's saying a lot more than Descartes would have said um, in terms of animals' ability to have thoughts, to, um, yeah. So it doesn't prevent him in any way from experimenting on them, but he definitely has a different idea of how this all works. So as we move from here on in the book, um, we learn a little bit more about one of the sites um, from which they're getting some of these animals. And this is, um, we've talked a little bit about the, the menageries, right? The royal mm -hmm. menageries. And we also learn um, a lot more about one of the really major projects that comes out of this work. And this is a history of animals. So let's first go into the menageries and then come back out and go in, uh, from the menageries um, to see what happens to some of these animals as they make it into the pages of this uh, history of animals. So Academy members, um, as of chapter four, are dissecting over 30 animals from the king's menageries. And these include mm -hmm. right, lions, chameleons, beavers, bears, all kinds um, of animals for, for lots of different kinds of reasons, right? And you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about why some of these animals may have been interesting, right? May have been considered yeah. worthy. Yeah. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what What's the range of kinds of animals that they're getting from these menageries and, and why those animals and not others? 
it's part of broad question, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, part of it is just which animals don't survive. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of exotic animals um, at the Royal Menagerie's boat. First at um, Vincennes, which is on the south eastern part of Paris, and then at Versailles, which is um, a couple, an hour and a half coach ride at this point out of Paris, two hours. So um, and, and to the west. Mm-hmm. And Vincennes is more a place for kind of animal fights, which was very common, um, animal combats, um, not so much a place for display. So at, at Vincennes, you had the kind of big, fierce animals, lions, and tigers, elephants, and things like that. And Versailles was more the, the kind of gentlemanly place you would go for a promenade and tended to have birds and other things, although the elephant ended up at Versailles. So, um, so part of it was which animals happened to be available. So the reason that they dissected a lion in 1667 was because the lion at the menagerie died and someone had the bright thought, let's dissect it. What a great idea. (laughs) So they did. And then they decided to basically do this more systematically. And when an animal died, it would be brought to the academy to be dissected. Or in the case of the elephant, everyone would go out to where the animal was to dissect it because it was too big to bring into Paris. So this, so the kind of the choice of animals was partly based on that. But I think there were other considerations. For example, the beaver which was not an, un, I mean, there were beavers in Europe. They were different species than beavers in America, but the beaver they actually dissected was an American beaver. And this allowed for a disquisition on, um, you know, French holdings in North America and Canada and the St. Lawrence and all this stuff. So, so it obviously had symbolic value. Um, and other, and there are many, many, many birds at Versailles, but we don't really, the first animals that are dissected are mostly not birds. Birds come later on. So they're looking more at the kind of marquee, big, you know, charismatic megafauna kinds of animals. Um, or animals that are somehow unusual, like the chameleon. And the chameleon had been subject of lots of speculation over the past couple of centuries, had appeared on all the big natural history works, Gessner and Aldrovandi and so forth, and was rumored, you know, that it never ate, doesn't, didn't eat, lived on air. You know, the ch- color changes were this kind of magical thing. So part of it was that, hey, we got a chameleon. Let's see if any of this is true. So they kept it alive for a while. But then when it died, of course, they dissected it. So part of it was scientific questions. Part of it were kind of imperial considerations. And part of it was whatever animal happened to kind of come down the block. Mm-hmm. So you talk about the production of images and also detailed descriptions of the anatomy of these animals that they were working on. Now, uh, early on, right, they were publishing this material in pamphlets. And then you take us into the process by which larger volumes um, are then produced after this. And they were a way in part uh, to glorify the king. And you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about the lion, right, the featuring of the lion as a way to kind of emblematize this. Now, what was the purpose of the history of animals that was produced by the Academy, what kind of work was that um, and sort of what was it meant to do so that listeners can sort of start to understand the origin of this project so that we can uh, better understand by the time we get to the end of our conversation what mm-hmm. happens um, toward the end of that project? 
Well, these were, it was, it ended up being two volumes, but it was kind of a giant presentation volume, Elephant Folio, really big book, um, and printed on beautiful paper. You can see it now. The paper is pristine. It's, you know, obviously high rag content, no foxing, no nothing. They're just gorgeous, pure white pages, beautiful typesetting, beautiful illustrations, full page, enormous illustrations, and so forth. So very expensive books. So in that sense, they were obviously met as another way to display the glory of, of Louis XIV and his you know, seal, the big fleur-de-lis on the front page, all this kind of royal symbolism all over the place, the frontispiece shows this mythical visit of the king to the academy, etc. But at the same time, Perrault and the other anatomists really wanted this to be a serious work of science. So they describe it's a work of natural history and natural philosophy. So it's not just kind of natural history type descriptions of the animals, but also descriptions of their anatomy and their function. And in many cases, their habitat, their habits, and so forth. So they're really trying to do a very serious work of science and of mechanistic um, science. So their descriptions of the animal's anatomy and functions are very much in in sync with the mechanical philosophy of the time. So there, it, there's a kind of tension between these two functions of these books. They're enormous. They're very expensive. So they're not something that anyone can just go out and buy. And in fact, most of the copies were given away as objects of patronage. So, but at the same time, Hello certainly wanted this to show, yes, we're doing real science here at the Academy. Mm-hmm. Now, the images um, in this project were really, really striking, and you reproduced some of those images in the chapter. Um, can you talk about the importance of the images and the illustrations in this text? The images are really interesting, um, and I fortunately found um, a whole a manuscript account by Colbert, who's the patron of the Academy, that talks about illustrations. and. His idea of illustrations is that, oh, yeah, so, you know, we need to have pictures of animals at the menageries. We need to have pictures of Louis Chateaus. We need to have pictures of Paris bridges. And, you know, they're all kind of the same thing. And that was obviously not the Academy's idea of what to do with these images. So we have, at the same time, the image of the animal alive in this kind of mythological setting. But we also have in this funny kind of trompe l'oeil thing, so it looks like it's actually tacked on an image of the dissected insides Mm -hmm. of this animal at the same time. So again, it's kind of serving these two functions, um, but also with this very high quality engraving, um, using both engraving and etching at the same time, which was very expensive. Um, And obviously, you know, and using the, the best royal artists and engravers who conveniently happen to be right next door to the academy. Mm-hmm. So again, the spaces of Paris become really interesting and really important, right? As mm-hmm. a way of understanding yeah. the history of what's going on. So just as we feel like we're getting to know and getting a little bit um, attached to a bunch of our guys, they go and die <laughs> on us, right? And they, die, they die on us in chapter five. Um, you know, Paquet dies, our poet dies, Guyon, as you uh, talked about before, the, the surgeon dies on the battlefield. 
Um, and in their place, Duvernay was appointed um, right. to, to help fill the gap. And you talked a little bit about him at the very beginning of mm-hmm. our conversation, right? It's a super fascinating character. Now, he had instructed the Dauphin, and so he was known as the courtier's anatomist. And ding, 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 <laughs> the title comes from. That's where the title comes from. Exactly. <laughs> so he's, um, he becomes a long-lasting collaborator with Perrault, mm-hmm. and he's really, really involved in and sort of, as you put it here, single-mindedly pursuing dissection. Now, he becomes really um, involved in Perrault's notions of animal mechanism, and this is really, really interesting. So you take us into Perrault's work on animal mechanism, and in particular, the importance of peristaltic motion. Yeah. So, um, we're going to get to opera in a minute. <laughs> so <laughs> listeners, so hang on. You may not think you're interested in peristaltic motion, but you will be. But you will be. <laughs> but so, so what's the big deal with peristaltic motion? First of all, what is it for listeners who may not be familiar? And, and what's important about the fact that he thought it was so important here? Well, peristaltic motion, as we define it now, is simply the, the motion that our intestines make when we digest food, that they kind of move on their own. It's an involuntary motion. And Perot was fascinated then with this idea of involuntary motion, which he felt must be governed by a kind of immaterial soul. So this to him was proof of animal soul. And this was in some way the kind of same metaphor, but kind of the, the model for all other involuntary motion in the animal, that this could not have a material cause. There had to be an immaterial cause to this, whatever that immaterial cause might be. So this was proof to him that a strictly mechanical account of animal motion or of, of the animal in general could not work. So, Yeah. So peristaltic motion, right? So now that we have that, um, and it it is connected with this idea of the soul, he's also really interested in the faculties of vision and hearing. And this becomes really, really interesting, right? I mean, one of the really important kinds of work that the book is doing in general is situating the history of science and dissection and medicine um, and experimentation within a broader cultural history of Paris, right? This is about really, at least, you know, as, as far as I um, read it and understood it. This is about not just saying, here's science, here's where it's done, but really showing mm-hmm. us the ways, right, that it's yeah. um, intricately bound up with uh, the physical and cultural history um, and context of the city. So here's one of the ways that this plays out really interestingly. So Perot is doing some really cool work that connects the theory of sound to ideas about the value and the legitimacy of modern music and opera in particular. This is super cool. So can you talk about that for us? Well, I thought, yeah. So Perot and actually Duvenet also does uh, um, do treatises on kind of the anatomy of the ear in the early late 1670s, early 1680s. Um, they're quite different in many ways. Um, Duvenet is a strictly anatomical um, but both of them are concerned with how how we hear, how hearing occurs. And Perrault prefaces his work on, on hearing, on sound, with a dissertation on ancient music. Mm-hmm. It's like, why would he do that? That just seemed so incongruous to me. Um, and I mean, it kind of, but then when you start looking at 
his context, his brother, um, because Charles Pillow is um, basically a literary critic in, in many ways. And so I have this scene where, and this is absolutely historically true, that the Pillow brothers and the artist uh, Charles Lebrun go to the opera in 1674 and see this opera called Alceste by Jean-Baptiste Lully, which is an example of the modern Italian-style opera, which has you know, multiple voices, multiple melodic lines, and so forth, and also has lots of kind of stage machinery, which was extremely popular. So, you know, kind of flying fairies through the air and all kinds of stuff like that. The, the classicists... Um, thought this was just an abomination. It's just awful. Um, the music was too busy. It was, uh, and the stage machinery was just, oh, just terrible. So, so Charles Perrault writes then a defense of the opera in the mid 1670s. And Claude Perrault kind of builds on that in his work on hearing in the ear. And he ends up talking about how the aesthetics of hearing is related to the mechanics of hearing, so which I thought was just so, so interesting. I had to kind of go on and, and write more about this. I was, I minored in music in college, so I knew a little oh, bit. Really? I knew a little bit about music, but boy, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> but it was just so interesting. And his, and given that uh, the Perrault, Claude Perrault in particular, was in many ways a humanist, He's extremely critical of ancient music. That ancient music is just boring. It's single toned. It's got. It's not melodic. It doesn't use multiple layers of sound. So he's incredibly critical of, of ancient music, and it's just it's like you know, primitive. Um, but the opera, well, this is this is good stuff. It's you know it's beaut- It's beautiful because it's complex and because of the way it kind of enters the ear. And the way we hear it. So it's a really interesting um, exposition of kind of talking both about the mechanics of hearing and the aesthetics of hearing. So, yeah, I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And if that's not enough, listeners, there's also ostriches in this chapter <laughs> and there's a labyrinth. So we won't talk too much about that, but um, the, I, if we had another hour, I, we could talk just about <laughs> ostriches, but also about the really fascinating labyrinth at Versailles, right? So um, yes. part of um, what it is, actually, well, let's just talk briefly about that because we're there okay. and labyrinths are okay. just cool. What's a big deal yes. about the labyrinth um, in terms of um, understanding animals and the connection to Versailles? So, the labyrinth is actually designed by Charles Perrault, um and is built in, in the mid-1670s and um, has a lot of animal sculptures in it. Um, I was extremely fortunate a couple of years ago. I was in Paris, and there was actually an exhibit with some of the remaining sculptures, which were mm-hmm. made out of bronze um, and, and were apparently painted in colors as well. So there are all these animal fountains, um, some of which were the animals that were in the um, Natural History of Animals books. And so you walk through the labyrinth and you come across all these exotic animals. And then you can also go to the menagerie and see more exotic animals. So kind of the whole aesthetic experience of Versailles was in many ways built around animals. And the animals were seen as these, again, aesthetic objects 
and um, scientific objects at the same time. So this kind of intermingling of science and literature and art and architecture, it just, you can't kind of tease out the, um, the, the separate components because they're all together. And this is one of the really special things, at least for me, about the book, right, is that you're not just showing us that they were intermingled and inextricable from one another in the context you're writing about. The book actually makes them inextricable from one another for us, the reader. Um, and that's really special and really, really important, right? To understand dissection and anatomy is to understand, you know, the poets and the architects and the yeah. aesthetics of a labyrinth. And as we move into the next chapter, it's to understand quintillion and rhetoric, um, and so, <laughs> and, which is fascinating. You know, like the last thing I expect when I um, start reading a book on dissection and anatomy is to have this really beautiful, detailed, vital account of quintillion. Um, so what's going on there? Well, listeners, we're going to get there. And the way we get there is by going into the King's Garden. So chapter six takes us into the King's Garden as a space of dissection. And it introduces us to um, one of the early surgeons who began to teach dissection there. Dionis? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Dionis. Dionis. Okay. So Dionis. Um, for Manchu fans out there, and I know so many of you are Manchu studies scholars that I have to mention this, Dionis is, becomes important to Chinese history because his work becomes one of the things that the um, people who are making the Manchu anatomy in the 18th century are basing their anatomical account on. So there's this oh. interest. Yeah. So we'll talk I about that, Anita. After yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's an interesting kind of global history anatomy thing going on here. Um, but so he is um, a surgeon who begins to teach dissection there in 1673. His lectures mm -hmm. are free. They're open to the public. And then when he retires to become the Dauphine surgeon, Duvernay takes over. Now, he taught at the garden for almost 40 years. He lectured publicly. And there's this super fascinating account um, also, again, directing our attention to the material circumstances of what's happening here. There's an account of the practical expenses of these lectures, right? Yeah. Like, how, like, what did it cost? Like, uh, what, what kinds of things did he have to pay for? Where did he get the money? And that's really, really interesting. Now, as part of this discussion, not only do you bring us into, you know, kind of the material expenses of giving these lectures for him, but you also bring us into the importance of the lecture um, in terms of the art of rhetoric and the art of oratory. Can you talk about that? Because that's something that's uh, really, really important, I think, both for this moment and also in terms of the larger conceptual work that the book is doing. Well, when I first started looking at Duvenet and I looked at the... Um, Eloge of him by Fontenelle, who talks about how his eloquence. And the one thing that pretty much everyone mentioned about him was how eloquent he was, what a great lecturer he was. And it made me start to think about what does it mean to be eloquent in this period? So I kind of started looking at this and looking at rhetoric and thinking of it also in the context of the fact that a lot of these guys are literary guys, um, because, you know, I was as you know, I end up talking about fairy tales too. Mm -hmm. um, and so what did it mean for someone to be eloquent? And what did it mean then that for Duvenet to be eloquent? So I started looking at the theory of rhetoric, which was a big deal in this period. The Académie Française was a very dominant body in many ways, much more important than the Paris Academy of Sciences. And 
was establishing what proper language would be at a time when French was in many ways taking over as the language of science. So all of these things kind of, again, kind of intertwine. And um, so, yeah, I had to look at Quintilian and Cicero and, and those guys and talk about what rhetorical theory meant and how DuVernay embodied this. Um, and it was very interesting that anatomy in some ways was a kind of ideal um, vehicle for proper rhetorical form. Now, you just said the magic words, fairy tales, right? <laughs> Um, no pun intended, actually, um, but I, but I'll take credit for the first, not a, quite a pun, but, you know, magic fairy tales. I just yeah. I amuse myself, and that's the most important thing. But fairy tales. Um, listeners might also be very surprised to know that fairy tales somehow come into this conversation. So can you talk a little bit about fairy tales? Well, um, probably Charles Perrault is best known as the author of Mother Goose. Um, it's yeah, it's that Charles Perrault, and so I wondered again, kind of okay, what's what's going on here? What's the connection here? And again, kind of loop it back to um, to rhetoric to the culture of the salons, which is where um, Perrault presents these works originally, and where there is also a lot of discussion of and performance of science going on, um, but also. I started to look at the animals in the fairy tales and the animals in the fairy tales in some ways play the same roles as the animals in the anatomy theater. So I, I kind of played off of that and that, that part was a, a lot of fun to write. Actually. Um, yeah. So cool. So cool. And so if <laughs> listeners are not already convinced they need to read this book, um, hopefully at this point they will be convinced they need to read this book. Um, so as we get toward the end of this story, um, we get toward kind of the end of this History of Animals project. Now, it was planned to be more than two volumes, right? But yes. But two volumes appeared, and the third one never did. Um, the reason why it never did is, is kind of an important part of this story. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there are many intertwining reasons why it never appeared. Part of it is the policy of consensus at the Academy, that in order to produce a third volume, they ended up literally reading out loud the first two volumes to the assembled Academy over a period of years, mm. um, and which took forever and never was never finished. And then Claude Perrault dies in 1688 when at this point they have a lot of new things written. I found there were, you know, corrections written on old proof pages. They had written a new preface and even printed it and nothing happened after Perrault died, and I think this must be DuVernay's fault. I just think he was not capable of organizing a project like this. He was a great anatomist. He could not organize himself out of a paper bag. Um, and there's another attempt, it seems to me, to do this again in the mid-1690s, when because um, I found this enormous cache, most of them at Paris Museum of Natural History, a couple of them at the Archives of the Academy of Sciences, of these amazing drawings and counterproofs, which means they were ready to be engraved, of all kinds of animal parts, um, some of them of animals that had already appeared in the Histoire des Animaux, but some of them new animals and even humans, and, and I mean lots and lots of them, and were ready to go, and nothing happened. 
So there was something like 200 drawings. Nothing happened. They just sat there. So, um, so, and then by the end of the 1690s, the supply of new animals from the um, menageries just dried up. Louis XIV totally lost interest in this project. So the new animals were no longer there. They were no longer dissecting um, <clears throat> sorry, um, exotic animals. Louis XIV actually gives the menagerie of Versailles to his daughter-in-law, the Duchess of Bur- Burgundy. Um, and it becomes this very, you know, courtly place in a way that it wasn't before. So it's not, it's no longer a place where there are fierce animals. It's totally a place for promenades. Um, so it just really changes its function. The scientific side of it just falls away. So, um, yeah. And by the end of the book, right, there, there's a conclusion that looks at the importance of comparison and comparative anatomy mm-hmm. in this period. It considers the role of these French anatomists in a wider European context. It brings us into the theme of the kind of relationships between ancient and modern. Um, but then it also brings us into an epilogue that looks at the afterlife of this history and, and, and kind of takes us into um, Buffon. Right, and Buffon mm-hmm. comes into this picture. So right. it's a way of kind of moving us um, toward the conclusion, or kind of maybe summing up before we um, before we finish. Can you talk about that afterlife for you? What's the most important um, kind of component or components of that for listeners to understand? Well, it's very interesting that so the project pretty much falls apart in the 1690s, and then is in some ways revived by Fontenelle in the late 1720s. Duvernay doesn't die until 1730. He's in his 80s when he dies. And he's basically just sat on these manuscripts for the previous 30 some odd years. He hasn't done anything with them. Um, And so he finally, after he dies, they say, okay, we're going to republish this because we think it's valuable. So there was a project in the early 1730s to republish all of the early works of the Academy because they had not really been published in a uniform way before. Um, But the unusual thing about the Histoire des Animaux is that it's revised. It's not just the original two volumes, Fontenelle and the two um, eventual editors, Winslow and Petit, decide to add all the things that had not yet been published. So there's a third volume that finally appears in 1733 with all these new animals, including the elephant. And these are the volumes then that Buffon comes across, I think, when he enters the Paris Academy in the early 1730s. And when he starts writing his Histoire Naturelle in 1749, having taken over the uh, Royal Garden in 1739, he goes back to those volumes and very thoroughly um, uses them as references for his, both for the specific descriptions of animals he makes, but also as a kind of overall approach, particularly in the early volumes, the, um, the kind of particularity of the Histoire des Animaux is very much echoed in the early volumes of the Histoire Naturelle. And I thought that was interesting. Um, that And that connection, I don't think, had been made very strongly by other historians up to now. So this is a super fascinating story, Anita, and we've only gotten to um, just a little part of it. There's a million, billion things we haven't talked about. <laughs> um, we haven't really talked about the elephant. You know, there are snakes, there are birds, there are all kinds of things. Is there anything in particular, though, um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? There are so many 
things. Um, I think the the kind of the 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 many people that it took to do all these things. Um, the people who I, I mentioned Couple earlier, who goes and finds the animals, the guy who makes the knives, the guy who makes the skeletons, and all of those people who get the kind of what Steve Shapen called, you know, the in- invisible technicians who made all this happen in many ways. We think of the big guy, the, the anatomist, but there were a lot of people around them that helped to make this happen, who get very little credit. So now that the book is out, um, and I hope listeners will, will get their hands on it. Remember, listeners, not just peristaltic motion, but also fairy tales <laughs> and mother goose, right? What's next for you? What are you currently working on? And, and uh, what, what, you know, what, what's uh, currently inspiring you? Skeletons. Ooh. <laughs> Can you tell us more? Yeah, I'm working on a project on kind of the, the human skeleton between 1500 and 1800, mainly, at, well, as an anatomical object, as a scientific object, but also as an aesthetic object and as something that is collected. So kind of skeletons and bones, um, skulls, particularly toward the end of the 18th century, and trying to put together something that will probably be much more episodic in terms of, I mean, talking about kind of different topics rather than following a chronological story. But yeah, it's pretty fun. And actually an episodic nature to a publication on that topic is perfect, right? Because you're talking about the articulation of bones, and uh, right? So <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah. So best yeah. of luck with that project, Anita. It sounds Thanks. like another fascinating story, and I can't really can't wait to read that. So let me know. Um, be in touch when that's out, and we'll talk okay, again. I will. In the meantime, thank you so much. Oh, thanks a lot, Carla. It was really fun. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.